0: You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Imagine you're in the middle of an enthralling movie, real edge of the seat, nail-biting stuff, when all of a sudden the action is interrupted. The battlefield scenes are suddenly replaced with the image of a poet prepared to read you from his latest work as he sits in his study. That's the kind of shift that suddenly takes place at the heart of the Old Testament. Following all the historical drama, all the ups and downs of the the kingdoms of Israel and Judah were interrupted by an altogether different style. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs together are known as the wisdom literature. I guarantee you, if you were to open your Bible randomly in the middle somewhere, you're going to land in one of those books. They're there right in the middle, and God gives us to them for a reason. And whilst we don't learn many of the facts of the history of Israel from these five books, we repeatedly encounter the rhythm and rhyme that ultimately confronts us with two ways to live. There's the way of the wise, and there's the folly of the fool. Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart, in their book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, and it's a great book to accompany anything like this. If you're wanting to do a big Bible review for yourself at home, that's a book I would thoroughly recommend. Well, they describe wisdom as the ability to make godly choices in life. The ability to make godly choices in life. Or I put it in my own way. Get what what you know of God wrong... Let me get this right. Get what you know of God wrong, and you will not relate to Him in the right way. But get what you know of God right, and you would be a fool to live the wrong way. Each book asks the same question. What does wisdom look like? And even these poetic books carry the distant whisper of the name of Jesus. For Paul wrote in Colossians 2, verses 2 and 3, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart, united in love, so that they have the full riches and complete understanding in order that they might know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the wisdom and knowledge of God that we need Are hidden in Christ. Knowing Jesus is described as the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. But even more than that, Jesus is the absolute embodiment of wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 24 Christ is the power of God and wisdom of God. That's a huge statement, isn't it? Jesus is the power of God, but He's also. The wisdom of God. So whenever we see Jesus in the Gospels moving around our world, we see the wisdom of God on legs, (laughs) walking in our world. So with that framework in mind, we open a book like Job, and we begin there tonight as we read the tale of an innocent sufferer. The tale of an innocent sufferer. This 42 chapter epic focuses on this man named Job. The setting makes it one of the Old Testament's oldest books, and it's most likely set during the time of Genesis. There are several clues that point us in that direction, for here was a man who lived to the age of 200, as chapter 42 tells us, which is very much a pre flood age, so it's probably set somewhere between Genesis 1 and Genesis 6. And as you read this book, there are no mention of priests or the temple or indeed Israel, it's an early story. We read that he lives in the land of Uz, and he was the greatest man among all the people of the East, according to Job chapter 1, verse 3. You're going to have to keep up with me tonight, so if you've got your finger in Job chapter 1, you'll also read there that, as with humanity, his story is one of great tragedy, but the opening chapter reveals that Job, verse 8, was God's servant. There was no one on earth like him. He was blameless and upright. He's a man who feared God and shunned evil. In other words, Job was wise. He knew God and he followed God's ways, which is the definition of wisdom. In other words, you might say that Job in his day was wisdom on legs. But all the earthly things that he had been blessed with, including family, property, livestock, reputation, were all swept away in a series of catastrophic events, bringing Job's life crashing around him, And yet look at Job 1, verses 20 to 21. In the midst of that tragedy, he turns to God in worship and cries out, The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Job would be one who'd be standing with us on a regular Sunday night here in Union Road, singing, Blessed be your name, you give and take away, and actually mean it. And as the story unfolds, Job also takes sick. And then his wife is so frustrated with Job's faith, despite the fact everything was falling apart, she's really angry with him. And then four of Job's mates turn up. And between chapters 3 and 37, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu each take their turn at interpreting Job's situation, but their words give away their lack of wisdom. They have such a mechanical view of God and simply put, they reckon Job has faced big trouble because he's committed some big sin. Now, listen, some of these characters reflect so many in the church today. I'm probably in this somewhere. There's first of all, Eliphaz. Well, he's like one of those Christian kind of mystics you get today, those floaty, dreamy types who wire us and tell us about special visions that only they have had. We all know those types. But the rest of us all feel rather second rate when they come in and say, Oh, but God told me, or I've seen it. Read Job chapter 4, verses 12 to 16, and Eliphaz comes and says, A word was secretly brought to me. My ears caught a whisper of it. He's this mystical type. But then there's Bildad. Well, he's a traditionalist. Job chapter 8, verses 8 to 10, he says, Ask the former generation and find out what their ancestors learned. In other words, what have others said about this before? Bildad's not prepared to say what he really thinks. It's all about, well, what did we do last time this sort of thing happened? And then there's Zophar. Well, he just shoots from the hip. All he knows is that sin deserves punishment, and so therefore Job must have sinned. And then you've got Elihu. Elihu, well, he's just what you describe as an angry young man who comes with plenty to say, but he speaks with very little experience. We could probably all picture ourselves or picture different people in amongst those friends. And their arguments go round and round in circles that keep saying the same thing but in different ways until it comes to gridlock in chapter 37. And whilst Job is not sinless, it is not his sin that caused his suffering, he is confused. He is concerned that God isn't hearing him in his heartache. But in the midst of it all, it's still to God that He goes. It's still before God that he cries. And then God speaks. They've done all the chittering, but then God speaks. And between Job 38 and 41, God reveals his wisdom and displays his power, the wisdom and power of God. We see him control the movements of the dinosaurs, hold lightning bolts in his hands, tending the storehouses of snow in the sky, stirring the world's oceans like a pot on a stove, we are led to conclude that even in suffering, God is in control. No microscopic germ, nor world leaders, or Brexit deals, or borders, or Burmese army generals, or hospital waiting lists, or parents' ill health, school closures, or exam results are out of his hands. In fact, as we read Job, we come to realize that God can use all these things, even these uncomfortable disciplines, as a loving Father who sees what we need to learn of Him to teach us lessons in life, to make us wise. True wisdom rests in this. When we see that God controls the intricacies of the universe, we can trust Him with what He's doing in the world, and even with me even now. Satan's greatest joy is when we believe his narrative of the world, that the world's a mess and there's nowhere to turn. But Job is godly wisdom applied. Job is guided by what he knows of God above him, not by the carnage he sees around him. And so Job leaves us with the question, do we trust God or do we allow our circumstances to dictate? That's the big question of Job. Do we trust God or do we allow our circumstances to dictate? You see, Job's story is the story of humanity. The world begins with peace, falls into chaos but in the arrival of Jesus Christ, the only righteous sufferer, humanity, can be raised to a happy ending. My, uh, I was thinking about this. If Eliphaz, Bildad, and his mates had looked at Jesus hanging on the cross at Good Friday, they probably would have looked at each other and asked, I wonder what big sin that guy committed. He's bound to be suffering because of something he did. Big sin, equals terrible suffering. But of course, in one sense, that's right. Jesus does take it all. And when we demand answers to suffering, Jesus keeps bringing us back to the cross. A few years ago, in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein case, the hashtag MeToo movement began when women who had been subjected to all sorts of horrific abuse came forward one by one as victims and identified themselves on this united front. I was hurt. I have been tormented by this for years. I have been violated. I have been forgotten. I have been abused. I have been broken. I have suffered. And maybe you could put yourself in one of those descriptions. Suffering, hurt, forgotten. To which Jesus would simply say, "Me too. Me too." The wisdom books introduce us to the idea that there is a righteous sufferer. He is our wisdom. But secondly, we come to the book of Psalms, and we uncover there 150 songs and prayers that speak to God. These Psalms, believe it or not, span 1,000 years of history, from the words of Moses on the way to the promised land, to the people of exile away from the promised land, but most, of course, are written by King David when he's in the promised land. Derek Tidbull has written a very helpful devotional on the Psalms, and he introduces them like this. The Psalms have, of course, been the oxygen of corporate worship and private devotion for God's people for generations. The whole of life is to be found in them, the complete range of emotions and the raw reality of our precarious existence. They speak to and for everyone, whatever their situation, and suck everyone in, no matter what the state of their heart. In other words... Psalms put into words how we feel. Some of them are hymns of praise, others thanksgiving. Uh, Some are those that pray for the king. And then more confusing ones that are known as imprecatory Psalms, where the author is asking that his enemy would be defeated and even have his teeth kicked in, such as his honesty. And then we've got cries of lament, when the writer appeals to God from a place of absolute despair. But one thing the Psalms always do, just like Job did, is whether in praise or in pain, to bring it to God. There's an Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann, and I wouldn't recommend all of Brueggemann's writings, but he has a threefold way of interpreting the Psalms that I find really, really helpful. He says there are Psalms of orientation, Psalms of disorientation, and Psalms of new or reorientation. And I think that's a brilliant way to describe all of the Psalms. In other words, each Psalm comes from a settled place of thankfulness, an unsettled place of confusion, or an arrival at a brand new place in life. It's a really good way to to see the Psalms. But one word of caution as we read the Psalms, whilst they appear in God's Word, the Bible, now remember this, they are not the record of God speaking to man, but of man speaking to God. And with that caution in mind, then it leads us to ask if this truly is God's word, God's word, but it's all about men speaking to God, why is it in the Bible? Well, God has been gracious to us. In order to help us speak to God in the hooray times and in the heartache times, the Psalms are our guide to worship, to an honesty, to a truthfulness, to an openness before God. In all our circumstances of life, true wisdom speaks to God. On to Proverbs. Proverbs is the third wisdom book full of sayings that lead us in the way of the King. As the opening seven verses of Proverbs suggest that David read for us earlier, this book was compiled by Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, who was granted incredible wisdom in response to God's offer of help when he became the king. Solomon chose wisdom over wealth, and the practical outworking of his wisdom and action is seen in the early chapters of 1 Kings. Read 1 Kings, basically between chapters 1 and 11, and you'll say, wow, this man was granted incredible wisdom. Look at Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. It reminds us there that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Essentially, the book is a far side chat between the king and his son. But the father's advice boils down to this. Watch out for the ladies. Watch out for the ladies. What do I mean by that? Well, there's a wonderful woman called Wisdom in Proverbs, but there's also a femme fatale, a deadly woman, called Folly. And success in life depends on getting wisdom and shunning Folly. Glenn Scrivener writes, But who are these women? As the book unfolds, it becomes clear that folly is a satanic figure and wisdom is incredibly Christ-like. Wisdom was there from the beginning, creating the universe at the Lord's side and giving us the grace of God. In other words, it's Jesus. But also we read here that being wise isn't so much about making right decisions, it's about being united to the right person. You see, this is a book of Proverbs not promises. Some people use proverbs a wee bit like, you know, the the Chinese lucky dip. You read a proverb and if if I do this, well, God will do that for me. And if I live that way, I'm guaranteed this. But that's not the way you're to read it. They're proverbs, not promises. Rather, they describe an entire way of life. In fact, you might say it's choosing the way, the truth, and the life. And any of us can have all the right information at our fingertips. But unless we use what we know, we become fools. Let me give you two quick examples. Eve knew God. She knew that God had created her and blessed her with a loving husband. It was perfect, a beautiful home, delicious food, an idyllic life, and a warning not to eat from one tree. Eve had all the information she needed at hand, Everything was there. Everything was beautiful. Everything was perfect. But she chose not to use what she knew was best. She wanted the fruit because she was told by Satan that in eating it, she would be wise. But she should have listened to the wisdom of God. Her way of wisdom was not the way of God. The solemn warning stemming from Proverbs is that Solomon does exactly the same. No one apart from Adam and Eve had ever known such wisdom from God apart from Solomon. I'll give you a second or two. Turn up 1 Kings 11 and verse 4. This is the wisest king that ever lived. But then you come to 1 Kings 11, verse 4, and we read, as Solomon grew old, <laughs> you see, This isn't just a warning for those who are supposedly young and restless, but those who become old and skeptical or casual in their walk with God have got to beware. Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. The very moment when we exchange truth for feelings... That decision, when we choose the attractive lady folly over the wonderful woman wisdom, let me emphasise again: the way of the king is the way of Jesus. And although that might look tough and challenging, wisdom comes not simply from making right decisions, but by trusting in the words of the right person. It's not a matter of intellect. You don't have to be an A-level or a degree student or somebody who prides themselves in studying in the school of life. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is not about being smart or clever. This is about being wise. Roger Crooks, former minister of Beaver Presbyterian in Belfast, writes this wonderful book, One Lord, One Plan, One People. And he says this, We reject folly and embrace wisdom as by God's grace we are enabled to shift from a life dominated by our self-centered, independent rebellion against God to a life of submission and rule. So often we concentrate on what we have been saved from rather than what we've been saved for. David's been beginning to draw our attention towards that over the last few weeks. But remember where he keeps bringing us back to in this Bible Fresh series. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, where God promised to Abraham and the people of faith after him a place, a people, and the fact that this people, and we haven't spoken so much about this, but they were blessed to be a blessing. In other words, there's going to be a promised land. There's going to be Christians beyond number across the world because of faith, and we see that growing down. But we are saved to be a blessing. That's the reason he saves us, to bless others. It's the love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, in poetry, in Proverbs. We can only love God if we obey God. You can't say you love God and disobey Him. You can only be part of His kingdom if you actively obey the King. Proverbs. We're three-fifths of the way there. Ecclesiastes. Well, Ecclesiastes is a reflection on life that leads us to look for life. Everybody loves a public inquiry, don't they? At the slightest whiff of government failure, politicians, journalists, Maggie from Money More, and Stephen Nolan are all calling for an inquiry. People want answers. And some eminent person is brought in to look at the whole thing, expose the failings, publish a report. And it all comes from our obsession in life that everything must have an explanation. It's got to make sense. And the book of Ecclesiastes has that public inquiry feel about it because people demand answers and need to know why. Well, the inquiry in Ecclesiastes is led by another king. Well, it's King Solomon again, we think. It doesn't say it specifically, but we believe that to be the case. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1 hints at that. A king whom we discovered tries everything in life over the first five chapters. Education, partying, Women, work, wine, sport, nature, travel, hobbies. You name it, he tries it. But the royal conclusion to the inquiry comes very early in the report. It says in chapter 1, verse 2, life is meaningless. A chasing after the wind, verse 14. But why so bleak? Well, because the book is written, look at verse 14 of the opening chapter of Ecclesiastes, it's written under the sun, In other words, he's only taken into consideration life in the here and now, under the sun as he sees it. In other words, like John Lennon sang back in the day, well, I'm not going to sing it, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all those people living for today. The ex-Beatle presented some kind of wonderful world in that song. No God, great, he saying. No religion, no one to hold us back. Nothing beyond, just you and me and today, baby. <laughs> just now, freedom, eh? But how does that help you if you've just received a cancer diagnosis? How does that help you when you're in an ICU ward like Louise described and a loved one dies? How does that reassure you if you've been wronged in some grievous way in this life? Because the world isn't particularly chippy or cheery at the moment, is it? Just thinking about that. It's all very well if you're a multimillionaire like John Lennon to sing Imagine There's No Heaven, because he had everything here on earth. But the moment you remove God, the moment you remove life after death, The moment you remove judgment or heaven and hell, there is nothing to live for. There is no hope of justice, forgiveness, joy, eternal life. Your life really just doesn't add up to much because you're just going to be feeding the worms for the next thousand years. And a classic example of this is how we've all got sucked into it on Disney Plus in the most recent release in their film Soul that kids are watching everywhere which basically sums up life as, well, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you're going to die. Just make the most of it now because life's going to end. But there is life beyond the sun because Jesus has broken into this world to save. Without God puncturing our world and entering in as a man to die and to rise, then all we have is our work and our wit. But without Jesus... It's all a spectacular waste of time because the grave's going to swallow us all. We need Jesus to come in and break that cycle, to be our Savior, to defeat death. And only then will this life be meaningful in any way. Let me put it to you plainly tonight. If you feel your life is going nowhere and that everything is worthless, I say to you, you simply haven't met Jesus, you simply haven't understood the gospel. Look at the man on the cross. And then come with me to the empty tomb. Yes, the empty tomb. And see what life is worth and see what your life is worth as he gave his life on that cross. And he rises again to offer his people a promised land beyond the sun. What has this world feared most over the last 12 months that has led to lockdowns and vaccines and cancellations? This world fears death. Look around this world, and what does it need most? Hope. And Ecclesiastes leads us to the conclusion that only having life on earth will produce a frustrating and a futile existence. So we're called back to our Creator. Remember your Creator. He is our Shepherd. And in Ecclesiastes 12, he's also our Redeemer. And why should we trust this God and take Him at His word Well, it comes to wisdom, it concludes with the song of songs, a dramatic love story. The song of songs, a dramatic love story. And in this book, this intense poem involves a young couple who sing to each other in increasingly sensual language. Let me summarize the drama of it for you, although in the, not in the romantic style of pole dark or Pride and Prejudice, and I can't promise you I'm going to channel my inner Mr. Darcy over the next few moments. But here's how the story goes. Solomon has a vineyard 50 miles north of Jerusalem, and he lets it out to some tenants. The tenants were a mother, two sons, and a daughter. And the young sister, known as the Shulamite, was the Cinderella of the family. She was naturally beautiful, but because she worked very hard in the vineyard, she had very little time to take care of her own personal appearance. But one day Solomon arrives, and he's in disguise. He's just he's just out for a ride, as it were. And he comes across these people, and he starts to take an interest in her. There's something about her that attracts him to her. She thought he was just a shepherd, and asked him some questions about sheep, to which he gave a very evasive answer. If you read it, however. He did speak lovingly to her, and he wins her heart. And he leaves her with the promise that, I'm going to return some day for you. But when he does return, he returns in all his kingly splendor, with carriages and coaches, as it were, and takes her to be his bride. And this relationship, like all marriages, has its ups and downs, but it emerges from these trials very much in love. And whilst there's no getting away from it, this is a love poem. There is so much to commend that What true love looks like in terms of covenant faithfulness. In fact, some commentators see this as wisdom literature's guide to romance, marriage, and sex the way God intended it, from Genesis chapter 1 and 2, as a good gift to be celebrated. Adam and Eve committed to one another in marriage forever, that lifelong companionship, one man and one woman exclusively forever, the context of all of that. But one word of caution, just because it's in the Bible... I'm not sure calling your wife's hair as beautiful as a flock of goats. Lockdown hairstyles included mightn't be so favorable. And please, whatever you do, fellas, don't write on your Valentine's card that her teeth are like sheep that have just come out from the dip. But Song of Songs, like the entire Bible, leads us to the love of Christ for us. In the Old Testament, The covenant is represented by many things. But in this case, it's marriage. Placing God's people into a lifelong and exclusive relationship with them. Only having eyes for God. Not to be flirting around with the other gods and things that catch our eyes. But when Israel falls into idolatry, just like Solomon did, it's because, well, he's been wooed by others, things, people money. The challenge is that we are not to walk out on a passionately committed lover. The picture continues in the New Testament, doesn't it, in Ephesians chapter 5 22 to 33 where Paul compares the relationship of Christ to the church with that of a husband to a wife. And the dramatic love story parallels for us God's relationship with his people. Folks, Thought about saying this, and I think it's true. We are a living fairy tale. We are the Cinderellas in the ultimate live action rags the riches story if we're Christians tonight. The Prince of Glory coming down to where we are amidst our sinful ashes and all our unloveliness of our lives, but he raises us up to his glorious kingdom. You see, Jesus doesn't just rule as the ultimate master. He loves us as the ultimate spice. And there's no walking out in us, even in our worst. He looks at us tonight and does not just promise us roses. He doesn't make rash promises he cannot keep. He doesn't stand aloof and we could do with them right near. He doesn't say it, he shows it. For when he says, I love you, he goes to Calvary and the tomb. Gavin Matthews from the Solas Christian Centre in Scotland amazingly was asked to write an article in the Scotsman newspaper last week and the quote's long but it's worth reading. He writes this. The current crisis has put several of our contemporary gods under the microscope. One of the reasons many churches across the country are reporting a spike in inquiries about the Christian faith is because of the failures of these secular gods to satisfy or help them navigate these difficult days. As wonderful as science, vaccines, and the NHS are, if our response is to cheerfully roll up our sleeves in order to avoid facing the truth of our mortality, then we've taken a spiritual sedative with our viral inoculation. The truth will still be waiting for us when we awaken. Religious systems that picture God as distant, detached, or uncaring don't meet the heart cry of suffering. But what I personally continue to find compellingly attractive is the character of God revealed in Jesus Christ. The God who knows vulnerability, who lived with us, suffered and died with us, yet was raised to life again. He holds his arms open to a broken world, to any who will come to him for forgiveness, meaning purpose, peace, joy, and eternal life. And the hope he gives doesn't crumble when tested by pandemics or recessions, but shines even brighter the darkness. Friends, In Jesus Christ, we have the beautiful, saving, loving wisdom of God walking among us. That's where these books take us. In poetry, rhythm, drama, love songs, proverbs. To the Savior, who is the wisdom of God. Amen.